1: Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Kasim Ali about his contemporary novel, Good Intentions. Kasim is an editor and works at Penguin Random House. He was long for the B4ME Short Story Prize hosted by Fourth Estate and his novel, Good Intentions, was shortlisted for the Mo Shusheran Prize. This episode is really a must listen. Being an editor, Kasim talks openly about what it's like on the other side of the process and gives some surprising advice as to why he thinks writers shouldn't be on Twitter and shouldn't follow editors or read the bookseller. Intrigued? Keep listening. Kasim's had rejection after rejection, writing in every genre imaginable, but the key to it all is writing for the fun of it. But before we hear all of that, here's Kasim with an excerpt from Good Intentions.
0: When do you go back? his father asks. His mother reaches for the remote, meeting the TV so that the fireworks continue but no sound comes from the bright lights. Work starts on the second, so I'll have to leave tomorrow, Noor says. You should have taken some more time off, his father says. It's nice having you home, makes it feel like it used to. I miss having you here, his mother says. And a sharp guilt pierces Noor. Even now, after all these years living apart from his family, he still feels it. It's impossible not to. He wishes he could stay here. Not in the house itself, but closer than where he is now. That he didn't have to travel for two hours to get home to see them. That he could be around his family more often. But things are so different now, have been different for a while. He's not sure if it's him that has changed, or if it's his family, or perhaps it's both. But somehow the house is still the same size it used to be when he was younger, and yet there is no longer space for him here. I know, he says. And he leans his head on her shoulder, the way he used to when he was younger, lying against her arm, falling asleep to the sound of her breathing. I wish I could be here all the time. Yeah, yeah, you're just saying that, she says. And even though she's teasing him, there is truth there. You should sleep soon if you want to get your train. What time is it again? Midday, Noor says, left hand closed, thumb digging into his index finger. We'll drive you to the station, his father begins. The words rise up in him before he even knows what's happening. I'm seeing someone. All Noor can hear is the pounding of his heart. His declaration hangs in the sudden silence. And he moves from his mother, lifting his head from her body. Rising from the sofa, he stands facing his parents, wants to see them. His mother's face is stone, eyes on him, waiting for Noor to explain himself. His father watches him too. The air has grown thick and heavy. I'm seeing someone, Noor says again, stronger this time, the truth swelling through him. What? His mother asks. His father is silent. I'm dating someone, Noor, Noor repeats. That word so impossible to even think of saying to his parents before. Who is she? Her name is Yasmina, Noor says. Her face floats before him. Her voice whispers in his ears. I met her at university. University, his mother says. Cogs in her head turning, numbers adding up. But that was Dean sal, his father says. for Noor says. Four years, his father says. Disbelief weighing down his voice. Why did you wait so long to tell us, Noor? Noor shifts on his feet, but before he can answer, his mother cuts in. Do you want to marry her and there it is hope in his mother's voice the hope she has had for so long because after all why would he be telling her this if not because he's planning to get married she's asked him over and over again if there's a girl he has in mind a suitable girl and he's lied to her saying no he doesn't have time he's always working and anyway where is he going to find someone where do muslims find people these days or his mother on the phone tutting at him rattling off a list of his cousins who have managed to find good partners And you, you're so smart, you're so funny, so handsome, and you're telling me you can't find anyone, but they can. He's told her every time that she only says this because he's her son, knowing that he shouldn't continue lying but not able to tell his parents. Not yet. And it's not just them, but Yasmina too, asking why he hasn't told them, and he tells her the same thing. Not yet. She asks him why again, and he says, because just not yet. That's why. Now he fills in the only thing that's missing. Yes, he says, but there's one other thing, Mom. Yasmina isn't Pakistani. She's Sudanese. She's black.
1: Hi, Kasim. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss good intentions.
0: Hey, Chloe. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be on this because I've seen all the other people that you've had on it. And I'm like, ah, oh, now I get to be part of that, that crew.
1: <laughs> thank you. So can you start by telling us what good intentions is
0: about? Good intentions is a book about uh Noor, who is a young Pakistani Muslim boy. Um sort of in his like late teens at the very beginning and then his sort of early twenties. Um falls in love with Yasmina, who is a black Muslim girl. And when they meet together, they're a party together at university. And they sort of fall in love in that kind of very cute way you do when you're like super young and you don't know anything. Um, and he sort of like charts their relationship over the next four years. And essentially the like the main conflict of the book is that Noor doesn't want to introduce Yasmina to his parents because he believes that they're anti black, which is, you know, a really big thing in the South Asian community and it, it kind of tells it in like uh, chapters that are all, all over the timeline if you will so it starts at the the the, the point when Nud goes to his parents four years in and he's like I'm dating somebody and she's black and I'm gonna marry her and then it goes back and like traces their relationship out it also kind of follows like a millennial stuff like identity and like how do you find yourself and like you know uh, how do you carve out a space for yourself if you're Uh, the child of immigrants and yeah what does family mean like I'm obsessed with family and friendships and sexuality and all those kind of like juicy topics.
1: (laughs) Well as you mentioned there are many many juicy topics to discuss and I've got loads of questions for you but I want to start with basically what do you remember where the idea came from and how did that first idea evolve into this novel?
0: yeah, so i've got I've got like um sort of three points that this idea that this 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 book kind of came from. And like the first one sort of goes back to when I was very young. I sort of was like twelve or thirteen. I grew up in an area in Birmingham, which was when I was very young, was very Pakistani, very Muslim. So, you know, all of these people had come from essentially the same place in Pakistan, and they'd migrated over, right? There was this like massive influx of um Pakistani people, but I think South Asian people. In general we were asked to come over and sort of rebuild britain right so my grandfather was like one of those people he got kind of called over and then he called over his family so they like came over with him so you have all of these people here they're from the same community back in pakistan they sort of live together they have this like very sort of you know homely feel to it but it's also kind of almost like segregated right so there's not a lot of white people there there's no black people there it's just pakistani muslims And then when I was around like 10 or 11, I distinctly remember we sort of had this influx of like Somali Muslims move into the community, right? I've never seen a problem with it, but I never understood that there was a problem with it because I thought they're Muslims, right? So they go to our mosques and they pray with us and they follow the same holidays and the same traditions and all that kind of, you know, all the religious stuff. But the moment they moved in, there was like a a very sort of... um, you know, very noticeable shift in the community, right? It's like barriers were kind of put up and there was a distinction between us and them and all that kind of awful stuff. And I was too young. You didn't have the language or the understanding of the world really to get what was going on. And then when I was like 13, I had this friend at school whose name was Ayan, and Ayan is like a gender neutral name. So you can give it to anybody. And yeah, so she was like, she was like very funny and I really liked her and we were like really good friends. And I was walking home with her one day, walking her to a bus stop. And my mom sort of drives past in her car, right? And I see the license plate and I'm like, oh God, she's going to like have a go at me because I'm walking with a girl and the girl is not part of my family. And my mom had already done this whole thing. She was like, Muslims don't date, you know, it's a sin and blah, 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 blah. So I'm like panicked, right? So I like go home and I walk really slowly because I'm like, maybe if I take my time. And when I get into the house, like my mom is stood over the hob. And I remember she was like very sort of, you know, stiff. Um, And I sort of go, like, hey, what's what's up? And then she's like, who was who was she? And I'm like, oh my God, that's a yarn I've been talking about a yarn for months, right? Because I thought I was being very smart by using her gender neutral name and allowing my mom to think that she was a boy this entire time. So I was like, remember all those stories I told you? It's actually, you know, her. Um, uh, my mom sort of is quiet for a second, and then she just says, like, you shouldn't hang out, you shouldn't hang out with girls like that, right? And at the time, I kind of thought she meant girls inside of the family, because if anybody sees us together, they'll assume that we're dating. And my mom was like very clear on the fact that we don't date. So it was only like years later, when I was talking to a friend of mine at university about this, this, this moment, and I can't really remember why I was telling them. But then they said, Oh, your mom was like being racist. It's because she was black. And I sort of realized then that like, I had other female friends who were Pakistani, like she'd never said that about, you know. And so you know, I realized this thing about my mom, which was that she had been acting in a way that was racist. It was anti-black, right? And once you sort of have this realization about your parents, it's like really difficult because you're just, you're in this space then, right? And you're sort of like, you don't want to think badly about your parents. So I confronted her about it, but well, confronted her, it was years later, so I just asked her if she remembered and she didn't remember. But then once I once I realized that about my own parents, I sort of started thinking about my people. And, you know, sort I of realized this big thing. So that's like the big crux of it, right? I've had this idea for like a very long time. And I thought that somebody very smart and very academic had to write like sort of like a why I'm no longer talking to white people about race kind of book about, about this issue. And it just never came, right? Year after year after year, I never saw anything written like it. And then so when the next thing happened, which was I watched The Big Sick, which is this film, um, uh, for those who don't know, it's a film written by Camille Nanjiani, who's a Pakistani, uh, American Pakistani Muslim, or at least identified as Muslim. I don't think he does anymore. And he writes this film about how he met his wife, you know, she's white and he's brown and they meet and then she gets, she fall, I think she falls into like a coma. Um, And it's about how, how do you, you know, you've just met someone and you love them, but then this happens to them. How do you go through that? And I I was really excited for it because it got nominated for an Oscar. So I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like, this is somebody from my own community writing about well, it's their own life and it's, you know, really successful. So I watched it and I was so disappointed by the way that he portrayed like the brown people, um, like his mom and his family and also like these brown women who he had meetings with to get married to, like sort of an arranged marriage sort of situation. And he just painted them all as like two-dimensional and they didn't have anything to them. Whereas this white woman, she got to be like quirky and funny and smart and she got to have like feelings and she got to be angry and she got to have like dreams and stuff. And she was like this fully realized character, whereas his own mom just didn't really get that. So I saw, watched that film and got really angry and I was like, I just desperately wanted to see like Muslims portrayed in in a way that makes them real I don't know tangible um and I also was like I want to see an interracial relationship that is not a white person plus not a non-white person because I've seen interracial relationships which are not that right so I had those two ideas and then this like thing that was bubbling in me for like years and years and years I sort of just was like oh maybe I can like attach that to this idea and sort of write it like that so yeah so those are the three things (laughs) sorry I was very long but that's that's sort of the those are the inspirations
1: for like the book. Well, I mean, fiction is a really great way into big topics and topics that have so many nuances. And certainly your novel deals with so many different aspects of life for a young Muslim man. I mean, I've just written a few here, you know, characters questioning whether traditions can evolve. And you've got things like um, living life as a gay man if you're a Muslim. And whether, you know, whether you can balance tradition and family and culture with, individual identity did you and also I mean mental health plays such a big part in this novel as well was there ever a part of you that felt slightly cautious about tackling these topics because you're so open about them uh not when I was writing it
0: and I think for that to make sense I should say that I wrote this uh, really just kind of because I, I love writing right so I've written for a very long time and I didn't think that this would get published because you know, I don't know, call it self-deprecation or imposter syndrome or whatever, but I just never, I never thought that it would. So I never really thought about the reaction from a general public, if you will, when I was writing it. But then when when the book deal happened and it was going to get published, then I did start thinking about it. And I remember I had this panic to my friend and I was like, you know, maybe I should take the gay Muslim character out or maybe I should um, not have this particular conversation about tradition or maybe I should put back on this aspect or whatever, and my friend thought of was like, it's the book that you've written. And to do that would be kind of, you know, this is not the advice that you would give to any of the authors that you work with in your job or like authors that you're friends with. So why is it advice that you're considering that you're giving yourself and considering taking it? So I never did, but it is, a, it is a worry, right? Because I think when you're trying to, and this is the thing, I didn't go into this book thinking that I was trying to represent anybody except the people in the book. But when you are off a, uh, of, you know, if you're of a gender that's not in the mainstream, if you are a woman, if you are non-white, if you're disabled, if you're queer, you know, if you're not like a straight white cis man, basically, um, and you're writing something or you're making something or you're just simply existing in a space that is public, right, and accessible by people, then suddenly you become the voice of whatever this thing is that you are and and I, I can find that very frustrating because it's very limiting because uh, there are like two billion Muslims in the world. I can't represent every single one of them. That's like literally impossible. I don't, don't think anybody can, but I think that is the sort of value that I'm held at, which is really frustrating because, you know, there are so many of us. So I did. Yeah, I did get a little bit scared about it, but then I just so I reminded myself that like, I'm, okay, so I, so I reminded myself that basically there are books that I don't like, that other people love. So I do not enjoy Normal People by Sally Rooney. I'm so sorry to her. It just did nothing for me. But like loads of people love that book. And for a while, when I read that book, and I saw all the enthusiasm it was getting, I just sort of was like, people are stupid. People are so stupid. This is a bad book. Until I sort of realized it's not a bad book. It's just not a book for me. And that is where I remind myself every time that somebody tags me in a review on Twitter or DMs me on Instagram and says like, your characters aren't Muslim enough, or I don't like the fact that you included the gay Muslim in this or whatever it might be. I just remind myself that like that my book wasn't for them and that's okay. Um, well, my book doesn't have to be for everybody and it's taken me a really long time to get here because I was worried about it for such a while. But um, But now I'm sort of like, if I want to write about something because it's important to me, the only thing that matters is that I do it authentically um and that I'm not harming a group or uh being cruel or you know belittling or condescending but then you know you have the question then of like how do you do that basically like how do you and I think for me it always comes down to like care and authenticity so you know with the parents in this book for example I really wanted to handle them with care I thought it was too easy to make them monsters and make them like huge capital R racists if you will who were like was, you know basically acting in an almost like comedic villainous way it's too easy to do that I wanted to make sure that I was writing about them with care whilst also still trying to make my point point. and I think that is that is where I am now I'm like if I'm writing about something I want to be careful I well I want to be careful and I want to write about it with care which I think are two very different things
1: I want to talk to you a little bit about the structure of this novel because as you mentioned you sort of jump through where you flip back and forth between times and we start with um noah going to see his parents and breaking the news basically that he's kept this relationship secret for four years um and i wanted to ask really kind of logistically how we went about writing this structure because um it felt to me that you'd almost kind of grouped the chapters in a thematic way so when your characters were discussing something that happened in um I don't know 2014 that they would then the next chapter would move on to something that was of a similar theme but just of a different time can you talk about how you you kind of decided to approach structure in that way here's the the, here's the fascinating thing about me writing
0: this book and I'm going to kind of going to step outside of myself a little bit and like talk about it as if I didn't write it Um, when I first had the idea for this book, right, all I had in my head, I'm like quite a visual person. I love film and I love TV. So all I had in my head was like this image, this scene of like Nood coming home and going to his parents and telling them this big secret. Right. And at that point, I didn't know if he had a brother or a sister. I didn't know if he had friends. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't even know what the name of the black woman was. All I knew was that there was this boy and he was going home and he was telling his parents this like big thing. So I write it, her name sort of comes out of, you know, nowhere. Oh, suddenly he's got a brother and a sister. Fine. Suddenly he's got a grandma. She's like in the in the space. Fine. Um, I got to the end of that chapter and then I sort of was like, oh, I know that logically, logically, if you will, in quote marks, what should happen now is the next chapter should be what happens next. But actually what I really want is I've now seen this part. Now I want to see the starting. So I want to go back and I want to see how they actually come together. And then when I got to the end of that chapter, I was like, oh, but now I actually do want to see what happened next (laughs) after he, you know, goes home to Yasmina and he tells her like he's told his parents. And that is how I wrote this book. I sort of got to the end of each chapter. And then I thought, what is it that I want to see next? And that's what I did. So I didn't have any post-it notes. I didn't have a spreadsheet. I didn't have written a timeline or anything like that i just was like literally all i had was a document in which it just said the name um sorry the the year that the events of the chapter were happening in and if anything big happened so you know the first chapter very big thing but then some chapters very small things happened so i was like just writing down oh they have a conversation um And that was only literally so that if I were, if I was writing a chapter later on, and I was like, wait, I remember that they had this conversation about something. Let me look at this document just to make sure that the times are right. Um, And then I, you know, I, we sell it to a publisher and I remember I had this uh, conversation with my editor and she was like, look, I know that you probably put a lot of time into this timeline and you've got like, probably got, you know, the meme of like the guy from, it's always sunny in Philadelphia and he's got like the big, she literally referenced that and she was like, I know you probably got that, but I want to make a couple of changes Are you're open to that. And I was like, Helen, I did not plan a single thing about this book, <laughs> whatever you want to it. And she sort of was taken aback by that. And I think it's because when people read it and they like it, some people really hate the structure, which I completely get. It's not for them. That's fine. But when people read the structure, they think that some sort of, some sort of thought should have gone into it. But what I like to tell people is that it was just vibes, right? It was just a vibe that I was following. And now to sort of intellectualize it, two years on, um, three years on since writing it, um, I would say that I was kind of writing it the way that I think Nud would tell the story of him and Yasmina, which is to say that when we tell stories about big events that happen in our lives, big relationships, if you will you kind of tell them in this messy way, right? You don't like just start at the beginning and then track it methodically and meticulously throughout the years. You kind of start at the big points and then you color other things in and you say, oh yeah, but then this happened two years before this happened. And then, oh yeah, this happened like a year after. Or at least that's the way that I tell stories. And I sort of tell them in this messy way, but it is just fills in details. And I like to think that my friends enjoy it, at least if they if they haven't, they haven't told me yet. So that was how I approached it. Um, that was how I wrote it and I, and I I don't know, I've kind of struggled with it a little bit because yeah, I've had people, you know, tell me that they hate the structure. They're just like, why didn't you write this? Like an A to Z, why did you have to do all of this thing? It was so hard, like I kept getting lost, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, there was a lot a lot of people complaining about it, but, so then I started thinking it was a bad thing to do, but actually it was so much fun to write and it was really exciting to write something like that. I'd never done it before. And I I I don't know if I'll do it again like that, but it was it was just really fun and felt like such it felt like the natural if it, it was an it felt like a really good way to tell their story. And mm-hmm. if that's how it felt to me, then yeah, I'm I'm happy with it. But um I
1: get why people find it frustrating. And I got the sense reading this that you love writing dialogue because there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of kind of back and forth between your characters, which is I mean an essential part of you building their love stories is having them talk to each other right so I get I got the sense that for you dialogue comes easily am I right I love writing dialogue. I
0: love I love it so much um when I first when when my editor in the UK first gave me my editorial like feedback she was like FYI like sometimes it reads like a radio play we're gonna need some (laughs) more description and and even now even now when you read it there's still not a lot in it I just love dialogue I love listening to people talk I love figuring I love figuring out how people talk to each other because I think there is so much that can be made of the way that we speak to one another and I know that there's a lot in like body language and the way we move around one another but it is for me the exciting thing about relationships like the stuff that we say are the stuff that we don't say. Um and so I love, I love writing dialogue so much. Um and it's it's something that people pick up on when they read this book because you're not you're not the only person to have asked. And that, that makes me really happy. Cause I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I I I love writing it. So thank you for asking. Cause it means that I I kind of did what I wanted to do. But I do remember somebody on Twitter was like, your dialogue is really immature and childish. Nobody talks like this. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you're always gonna get idiot comments on Twitter you know so oh but you know what you know what? I thought I thought my book wasn't for you and that's okay it's really Zed when you get into that space of thinking not every book is for everyone Mm -hmm. you're so chill when people say your book sucks because you're like okay
1: yeah I mean I've reached a point where I don't I've not looked at my reviews now for months and I'm absolutely fine with it which I wasn't expecting to feel like that at all I thought I would be checking all the time and now I don't look I don't really care
0: Yeah, I think I I was the same. I was the same. I think you sort of realize, or at least this is what I realized. uh, And maybe it's because I'm like a pretentious, like asshole who went and did English at university. But there's this like, very famous theory about the author being dead, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, you write something, you put all this intention into it. And then it gets, hopefully gets published, and gets shared with a lot of people, a lot of people who have never met you, who do not know what the inspiration was for your book, who have no idea what you're like as a person and what you intended to do with it. And they just read it as it is. They just come to it and they're like, here we go. And then uh, they bring so much of themselves to it that they will then assume what your intention is. And then you're just kind of like almost fighting them constantly. But you, for me, I sort of was like, it was really interesting because I was like, oh, this thing that I learned at university many years ago is now actually happening to my real life and it's tangible and I can I can like almost feel it. Um, it was very freeing to sort of just think I'm dead. I'm like in this scenario, in this very, <laughs> I know it's such a weird thing to say, But in this very specific scenario, I don't exist anymore. Well, only what exists is like the book and the reader and their relationship to that book. And that is it. It no longer matters because I can't go into every bad Goodreads review or every bad tweet or every person who just doesn't like the book for a reason and explain why I did something. I mean, they they are very free to seek that out. We are so much more available as authors these days, like on podcasts and interviews and Twitter or whatever but I don't have to do that. And, um, and that's okay. Um, I'm very happy with (laughs) people not thinking the book is good, because hey, I think normal people is not that great. And a lot of people do.
1: I wanted to ask about kind of conflict in your book, because I think a lot of the time when we're starting out as writers, or whether we're reading about how to write, you often read about antagonists or conflict. But when you're writing a novel like yours, which um, is a more character based novel. Conflict comes from a more nuanced place. It often comes from a a quieter place. It comes from within a lot of the times. And although you've mentioned there is conflict um, because of the racism in the novel and characters that are racist, a lot of the conflict comes from what, like you said, what characters are not saying and they're not communicating. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you created the conflict and the problems in this novel, because I'm guessing it came simply from doing the work when it came to the characters. I never thought about this this book as having conflict in it
0: until then I went back and read it and I was like, oh, it's obviously like right there, right? The way that I sort of, the way that I thought about this book in regards to the tension, that's what I always thought. I was like, there's tension here. Um, Because there's tension when Nud gets into a relationship with Yasmina because he's not supposed to, right? He's like the good Muslim son of parents who at some point will want him to get married, but definitely do not want him to date before that point. So there's already tension there. And he smokes weed every so often, which is definitely not a thing you're supposed to do. And he's got, you know, friends who also behave in ways that aren't very good Muslim ways, if you will. So there was always a tension with Noor, with his parents, because, and I wanted to make that complicated. I didn't want to make it as easy as like he hates his family. So he's running away from them because actually he has a lot of love for his family and he wants deeply to continue to be a part of it. So there's that tension there with him. Then I wanted, then I was like, okay, and then there'll be tension in the relationship that he gets into. Not solely because he thinks that his parents are anti-Black, but because how do you keep someone a secret for four years? What do you have to do to yourself to convince yourself that that is a fine thing to do? And what does that do to somebody when they're in that? Is that a conflict? I don't think so, because it's not as easy as pitting something against something else. It's just a lot of tension because... Yasmina clearly loves him and he clearly loves her but yet he's not willing to do this thing and he's keeping her a secret and kind of making her smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on which is ironically not what he wants to do and is the thing that he thinks he's saving her from doing from not introducing her to his parents so it's like conflict is like I I know that we get taught about it in like a sort of a sort of easy way in which like something versus something else but actually for me when I was writing this book, I was thinking about tension a lot and I was thinking about where the tension is and where we can relieve the tension because it doesn't have to be tense all the time, uh, which is something that I learned when I was like editing this book because I had put a lot of tension into it. And then my editors were like, you know, you don't actually have to have every chapter be dramatic. (laughs) You need quiet moments of just joy and warmth. And I was like, okay, um, so I tried to put those in as much as I could, or I tried to pull out the ones that were already in there. But yeah, so f- for me, like the conflict in the book, it's just it's just so hard to talk about because it's like I want you know I I think um, to simplify it would be like it's a tension between him and his parents, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is conflict between him and his parents. I think he just thinks of them in one way, but they're actually co- like complicated three D people like he is, and he doesn't give them he doesn't give them the opportunity to be that, and he assumes things about them but he loves them so much. It's just this like gray area of like being alive, right? Which I think we're all in all the time. And I I really love that. So yeah, I don't really know how to answer that question about conflict because I just don't know if I put conflict in my book. I think I put tension in my book. Even at the end when things happen, there still for me isn't a conflict. It's just this like,
1: yeah, it's just this, this tension. I feel like tension, the tension is the conflict. Even if you don't want to call okay. it that
0: <laughs> we can say that we can say that we can like a we can come to a compromise where i can say tension is conflict um i did this like writing workshop my first one ever which terrified me because i was like who am i and why do people want to listen to me um and i was trying to talk about this very thing to them and i found it really difficult because i think when i hear the word conflict i i find that to be a very simple a versus b thing right and sort of and and and, and you can have that in books but I was trying to teach these people, these, these people who had, you know, gave, given up two hours of their time to come see me, I was trying to teach them that the way that I think of conflict is never between people, but between ideas. And so maybe maybe that's, what, that's how I approached this book and kind of all my writing is conflict between ideas. And... So I think, you know, with Noor, there is a conflict between like tradition and modernity, if you will. There is conflict between his own individuality and being part of something. He's part of something when he's home with his family, which I think you you see a lack of when he goes to university and, and he misses being in the fold, but also enjoys his own independence, if you will. And there is there is conflict for him between the idea between ideas of love you know his 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 parents had an arranged marriage um and yet his parents do love each other um but I think there is a conflict in the idea his idea of love which is what he does which is goes and finds someone and his parents idea of love which is something that your parents find for you Mm -hmm. um so maybe that's maybe oh actually in talking to you maybe I figured out the
1: conflict in my book it's between ideas (laughs) so (laughs) thank you for that Chloe that's all right you know I think it is I think often when courses and writing books that it's always they always use examples that are very tangible it's like you the conflict is finding the murderer or the conflict is I don't know um you're being chased by something it's always framed in that kind of way and when you're writing a, a more character focused or a more literary novel conflict is in the tension I think that's we've solved it
0: Absolutely. Oh, my God. Look at us. Maybe we should do like a writing workshop, you and I together. (laughs) We can can teach the people. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, while we're on the subject of your writing process, I read that you kind of wrote this book in a bit of a frenzy, in a kind of when you were feeling angry about the big sick. You just kind of wrote this novel in a, in a kind of a wild state. So is that how you approach first drafts? Is it a case of just getting it all out on the page and then refining later? How do you work? I I'm gonna say something which
0: is very annoying to any writer who listens to this, but I wrote Good Intentions in six weeks and I didn't look back one single time. I just was like, I'm gonna write the whole thing. It was like hours a day. I just find it really fun. Um, I I've always found writing to be very fun. And in the moments that it's not, it is because the thing isn't working for me, at which point I abandon the thing and I move on to another thing. Like uh, writing to me has never felt, it just is, I if it feels like a struggle, that's because I'm not, hit. the idea isn't hitting for me. So then I move on, somebody else can write the idea. So my writing process is very much, I have the barest bone of an idea, like the barest bone <laughs> of an idea. And then I sit down and I start writing and then suddenly a name appears to me, suddenly um, a location or relationships appear to me. Like, for example, with Good Intentions, when I started writing it, I didn't for Noor, I knew that he needed a friend. Uh, and I wanted it to be a male friend and I wanted it to be Pakistani and Muslim because I wanted to make some sort of you know, similarities and sort of highlight their differences. I had no idea Imran was going to be a gay Muslim until I started writing him. And then I was like, oh, he's a gay Muslim, all right, fine. And I and then that turned into, for me, he's like my favorite character because of what happens in his journey. And that all came from literally in the scene. He just sort of appears out of nowhere in my head. And that is how it's always been for me. I never plan anything. Um, so I will write my first draft. And then with good intentions, here's the other thing that people are not gonna wanna hear. I didn't read it back or edit it before I sent it out. Oh, I, yeah, real risky on my part. (laughs) I, yeah, I didn't read it back. I didn't edit it. What was I thinking? I just sort of was so confident maybe in the idea and so confident in my own writing ability at that point that I just was like, I'm going to send it out. With my second book, I, I, did kind of did the same thing i wrote this thing and then i sent it to my agent and then my agent came back and was like you know here are the things that i think I need fixing and so then i refined those the, the things that i agreed needed fixing there were some things that i said to my agent uh, you're wrong and i'm not fixing that and she was like all right fine. <laughs> um but yeah i so so i i don't tend to go back i don't tend to refine i find editing my own work to be incredibly difficult i can't really put myself in the headspace of doing it Um, And I've tried, I've tried all the things, you know, stepping away from it for a while and coming back or um, reading it out loud to myself or any one of those things. I find it incredibly difficult. I kind of need someone to help me with it. So I think that's why I'd never look back on my stuff. I just sort of send it to whoever. And now I'm lucky enough that I have an agent and I'm lucky enough that I have an editor whose jobs is to do that thing. Um, But yeah, I'd never plan. I have no structure. I don't even sometimes know what the ending is. Sometimes I know the ending is going to be some one thing and it changes completely. Or sometimes I don't even think about the ending. I just sort of, I'm like, I would like to see where this takes me. And it's really, it's it's a really insane process because I think I lose myself in the writing of it so that I lose so much of myself in it, in terms of like, I don't even think of myself as the writer anymore. I think of myself as like the reader and I'm like discovering the story. So there've been so many times where I've um, with my second book, my friend, one of my friends read it um I she was texting me and she was sort of like I can't believe this happened and I was like I know I can't believe it happened either and she's like you wrote it what do you what do you mean and I was like I literally cannot explain to you that I have no idea what's going on and then something will happen I'm like aghast myself I'm like typing it like what's gonna happen next um And maybe that's why I find writing to be really fun and really exciting because it's just like every time I do it, it's like discovering a new book and I'm reading it for myself. And the really interesting thing or the really funny thing maybe is that whenever I've spoken to writers that like events and stuff, I've been very lucky to do a few this year. Uh, they always come up to me and they're like what what advice do you have for me what's your writing process like and I'm like I'm so sorry I don't have one I don't have like the magical trick the, the, the thing of like wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I drink a green tea and I touch a specific place in my wall I don't have any of that I just sort of sit down and write whenever I have the time and I enjoy it and I think maybe that's the thing that they're looking for is like how do I get to a point where I enjoy it because maybe then you stop thinking of it as like something you have to do and something you want to do and then that's where that's where truth like you can really start writing loads of things I don't know how to I don't know how to I don't know how to make somebody enjoy
1: writing Chloe no idea how to do it I don't know why I got you on the podcast because that was the whole reason you know I got you to on here to give me your wisdom and advice but now I'm screwed so (laughs) (laughs) I can give you the I can give you the advice I give to my
0: writers as an editor which is like You should always uh, do a little bit of planning before
1: and don't edit while you're writing. Even though you don't do the planning, you tell your authors to do the planning. Yeah, I know. I'm a massive hypocrite. But I think it's because
0: I'm aware of the fact that this only really works for me. (laughs) I don't think it works for anybody else, or at least I haven't. Not to to say I'm like unique or whatever, but the people that I've spoken to, they will always do planning. Even if it's the tiniest, like one paragraph, they will always do something and I just don't do anything. But yeah, I tell my authors to do a little bit of planning. I tell them to write the first draft and never look back because if you look back, you'll get stuck in that first bit. I tell them to take a step back from the book once you've finished, like a month, maybe two months. Um, and specifically, I tell them in that one or two months to write something completely different. Um, so I will tell my authors that one of, one of the best things you can do for yourself is to write a short story if you've written a whole book write a short story because that is it puts you in a completely different uh, mindset and then you can go back and and you haven't even thought about your book because you've been thinking about the short story you've been writing and then you can go back with like fresh eyes of someone who was who isn't the writer almost um and there are all other kinds of bits of things I I tell them to think about the story engine and the tension and, and all kinds of things which I've learned to myself through editing, but I
1: don't listen to any of you as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a great interview you did on the Make It Make Sense podcast and you spoke very candidly about your efforts to get published basically and you have written so many books you've written YA, dystopia, romance, fantasy you wrote a 200,000 word (laughs) tome and uh you spent a lot of time sending out to agents being rejected writing a new book being rejected I think you spent six years in this cycle so I was wondering whether you could tell us how you went from that to actually writing the book that got published um I'm
0: going to say something incredibly arrogant, especially for people who don't think my book is good. Uh, I never once really completely faltered on the idea that I would be published. There were moments where I was really upset and I was like telling my friend, I can't do this anymore. It's really hard. I don't want to. Um, and they were bad moments, but I always got out of them. And I think it's because I have this, I have this thing in me that's like, Yeah, you'll do it. Of course you will. What are you talking about? You're too good not to. I have no idea where that comes from. I have no idea where it comes from, which is why I think it sounds really arrogant. And so when I was writing, when I first started properly writing um, whole books and not just short stories, and I started to submit them to agents, when I got those rejections, I just was like, okay, this book didn't work, on to the next one. Like I've never reworked a book. I've never gone back to an idea. I've always just pursued something different. And when those rejections came in, I think at the beginning I was very, very sort of formidable. And when they came in, I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, Deleted all my rejection emails. I see no reason, by the way, to any writers who are listening to keep your rejection emails, delete them. They're just taking up space in your brain and in your email, just delete them. You don't need to do a, a walk of glory with like your rejection letters. No one no one cares. You got there. That's what matters. Um so I was very formidable. And then I think maybe a couple of years in I was like, oh, this is like going badly. <laughs> what can I do? But I just kept writing. I just kept writing. I never did a writer's course. I never like I never even looked up interviews with other writers. I never did any of that stuff. And I think it was because at the time I knew so little about writing. I knew so little about publishing. I knew so little about anything really. I was just like a 20 year old at university who was like learning about the death of the author. And I just was like, writing is really fun. And I maybe that's the thing. It's just always been really fun for me. So the rejections never really hurt. Cause I was like, but I had fun. I had fun writing this, like, YA dystopian trilogy. I wrote a YA dystopian trilogy, even though the first book got rejected. I still wrote book two and book three because I wanted to know how it ended. Like that's insane, right? That's just like insane. But I wanted to know how it ended. So when the rejections came in, they didn't really hurt. I think the ones that did hurt were the ones where I had tried to write something to get published. So the there was a book that I wrote about, and it was really fun while I wrote it, but I did write it to get published. And it was a book about these two... People who kept meeting in alternate realities and falling in love, right? And it was sort of exploring the idea of like, is is love a sort of thing that comes, that that will bring people together no matter what situation they're in? And it's shit, Chloe. It's so bad. And I wrote it to get published, and now got rejected. And I was like, oh my god, I can't. I was like, oh, when I'm not trying to get published and I'm having fun, I can't get published. And when I'm trying to get published and I'm having fun, I can't get published. So like maybe I'm bad. But even then, I got rejected for that so many times. And I was like, all right, on to the next one. Because <laughs> it's such a part of my life. And I really enjoy it. What's really interesting is like the shifts that happened. So I wrote a lot of YA, a lot of fantasy, some horror, some science fiction. And I was effectively just doing like, what if this but Muslims? So what if The Hunger Games but Muslim? What if The Martian but Muslim? So I did all of those. And then I just sort of was like, Do you know what, I'm going to step back because my, my my reading had evolved and I was reading a lot of contemporary fiction. And I was like, I'm going to try to write one of these. And I had tried to read A Suitable Boy by Vikram Rick- Seth, which is so long and so boring. It is so boring. And I read like 300 pages and I think there were 700 pages left. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. This is going nowhere and I'm bored. And so I was like, what if I tried to do something like that? What if I tried to write a sort of generational epic, but I set it in Birmingham and I set it during the time that I've been alive. And that's the 200,000 word book that you're talking about. And that took me like six months of just like hours and hours a day, just every day of writing. And I sent it out and those rejections kind of hurt but then they also didn't hurt because people came back and they gave me feedback. Like a couple of agents came back and were like, I loved this, but it's too long and it's too messy and it's too chaotic, but I'd love to see what you do next, you know? So even those rejections where I was like really trying to do something capital I important and got rejected, even they didn't hurt that much because they brought feedback with them, which kind of gave me a sense that I was heading in the right direction. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting journey, but I, I wouldn't change a single thing about it because I think writing every single book taught me something. And it, yeah, made me a better writer. And I'm still learning how to be a better writer. I don't think you ever really stop. Book two is a lot better than Good Intentions because I learned so much whilst being edited and editing the book. And book three will be even better, hopefully. And and I will constantly just learn. Um, yeah, I think I'm just like a, I think I'm just like a really optimistic person, annoyingly. <laughs>
1: Well, maybe that's the attitude you need, and like you say, it's it's loving the writing that is has kept you going through all this time. Because I think if if most people wrote a two hundred thousand word book and then it didn't sell, they may feel that like they just want to give up. But you didn't. You carried on. It just means a lot. It means a lot to me. It's um, it means an awful amount to me. I just
0: I love writing. I love creating roles and characters. I love writing dialogue. I love seeing where things go. I love being surprised by my own writing. And it is just such a fun space to be in. I'm writing some short stories right now because I'm in between edits, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm doing my own advice, which is to stop thinking about the book and writing them different. And it's so much fun. And I uh, nothing will happen with these short stories. They'll just sit on my laptop. But it's like so much fun to just go in and challenge myself to tell an entire story or part of a story within like 10,000 words when I'm used to like a novel length project. It's... um. It's really enjoyable.
1: I love doing it. And I, I I hope that never changes. And I heard you say that you think that every editor should write a book and see what it's like from the other side. So what did you learn as an editor and as a writer? I
0: absolutely recommend this. And it's not because I think editors would be good writers. I've met some who I don't think could write a book, even if they were given a million pounds to do so. I think it's because once... I became a writer with like a book deal and a publishing journey, if you will. I sort of realized there are so many moments as an author that you feel completely and utterly vulnerable and exposed. So even though I knew how publishing worked, if I emailed my editor and she didn't email me back in like two days and she took like a week or two weeks, I would panic and I would think she hates me. Oh, my God, my editor hates me. The book is shit. No one's buying it. Ah." As an editor, I've done that. (laughs) And it's not because I think any of those things or any of those things are happening. It's because I'm in meetings and it's because I'm putting all the back, the background work into making sure the book works. I'm having meetings with sales and with retailers and I'm talking to publicity and marketing and rights and all that kind of good stuff that makes your book work that I don't have time to email the author back. And yet that was something that I was, that was something that I was doing all the time. And, and, and when it happened to me, I panicked, you know? And there are so many things, there are so many other things. It's like this, the moments of silence are really hard, but it's also when you get told something and you don't quite understand it. Or you know, you get told something would happen at some a certain point, and then you don't get told that it's happening, and then you panic, or it, there's so many things, there's so many things, there's so many moments where I just felt like completely exposed. And now as an editor, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like for authors. I get it because I was there, I was one myself. I am one. Um so. What I learned from being published was just how to become a more sympathetic editor to an author. And I know that editors are going to hear this and they're like, we don't have time. And that's the thing that I think we need to be more open about with our authors. I think editors try to present themselves as like really powerful, all-knowing people. And actually we're completely fallible and our jobs are sort of impossible we have so much to do all the time and as time goes on you get asked to do more and more and more and more and the higher you get up you have to manage people as well and start thinking about the the needs of the business and profit and all that other kind of boring stuff so i think we just have to be more open with our authors and explain a little bit of that so that when an author is in a situation where they're feeling needy and they're feeling clingy and they're feeling desperate these are all feelings they have because they just want to ask a question about sales or pre-orders or how does this work or I don't really know what this means that they, under- they understand that if they send that email a it's okay and b it's also okay if like the editor doesn't get back to you instantly because they're really busy doing all the stuff that will make your book work and maybe also that if the book doesn't work that is not a failing on your part it's not a failing on anyone's part it's just something to learn from and grow from but yeah that's what I learned as a writer I learned nothing <laughs> As you can tell by the hypocrisy in which I give authors advice that I do not follow myself. I learned how to be a better editor. I do not believe that I learned that and it's changed my writing process. It's made me a better writer for sure because being edited will inevitably make you a better writer. You will learn things about your writing that you're like, oh, I really do use like 17 metaphors when one will do Or, uh, oh, I had five pages of dialogue with not a single other bit of writing in between it. That could be a bit much. So I did those things, which will make me a better writer, but it didn't impact my writing process at all. I annoyingly have stuck to what works for me, but I've definitely become a much better editor because of it. And that's why I think all editors should go through the process. But do you know what, Chloe?
1: They don't have the time. They don't have the time. I'm going to ask you another advice question now so you can feel free to say that you have no advice but um, you've spoken um, quite openly about the frustration that you feel about the lack of marginalised male writers being published and how publishing can be quite dismissive of of male writers particularly when they don't mean all male writers they mean the straight white cis men writers Um, so do you have any advice for anyone trying to write or get published who maybe feels like the industry isn't open to them it's such a the the issue of like just talk about that for a second the issue of like
0: male writers is so fascinating because what will happen i've had conversations with a lot of people about this is that they will say jonathan franzen and Cormac mccarthy and stephen king and they'll name all these like massive writers from like the 70s or the 80s who are huge now but then you ask them to name like a couple of You know newer ones and they don't really have anyone that comes to mind right and yet if you ask them about female writers there are loads which and here's the thing i'm not a misogynist i love women and i love reading their books of course i do but as a male writer myself it does make me a genuinely sad because i look around and i'm like i can't name a young male writer who's like become a sunday times best-selling author and has consistently sold well and has become something with a capital S and that just makes me upset um but it's a really difficult issue to talk about because I think when I talk about it to people in the publishing industry who are primarily women at a certain level and then the men suddenly appear at the top and you're like where did you come from when you try to talk to people about it what happens is that I think women think that I'm saying there's no space for women or like they should be less space for women or why should women write in the first place which is like absolutely not what i'm saying at all what i'm saying is are we are we gatekeeping all men because we've decided that white men have been published cis straight white men have been published too much which i completely yes of course they were but are we now gatekeeping all men from that you know like i had i had an agent to, to like just tell me that she doesn't represent men um at all and i was like really saddened by that because i was like i completely understand where your sentiment is coming from i completely get it but at the same time all i'm thinking about is like i don't know the male writers out there who might be writing a book that you would really like and you'd want to represent and that maybe people want to read and you're not even going to give them a look because they're they're a man like i don't i don't agree with that i do agree with taking a look at your publishing lists and seeing if you have too many cis, straight white men, what are we going to do about it? How do we find those writers? I don't agree with the blanket sort of ban, which is not really what's happening. And I don't I don't think that's happening because I am a male novelist. And I have a book published, but it's like a real issue. And I do think we need to talk about it. It's just a really complicated conversation. And people assume the second you start to- talking that they they assume so much about where you're coming from. Advice that I would have is is kind of... My advice to people who uh, do come from spaces that they don't often see in publishing and they're finding it difficult to get published is to not let publishing become your capital T thing. Because here's the thing, I can give you all the reams of advice that you've seen on Twitter, right? Which is like, keep going. Everybody has a story. Your story matters. All those things are true. However, the thing that people aren't telling you or at least the things that I I see that people aren't really saying is that if you allow publishing to become your whole thing, you allow it to consume your whole life, right? You're like, like, I don't know why any writer would need a subscription to the bookseller. I don't know. Why are you following the bookseller? All that's going to give you is like anxiety and depression, right? Because you're seeing everything happen to other people. That's not happening to you. And also, by the way, editors lie in the bookseller all the damn time. They're telling you something was preempted, it was not. They're telling you something went for six figures. It went for 100,000, which is still a lot of money, but it's not 900,000. You know, like it's it's the book sale is still lies. I've done it myself. It's just lies. You're just trying to make yourself sound better. Authors shouldn't follow the book style on Twitter. They shouldn't even follow publishing people on Twitter. Don't follow editors. Do not follow people who work in publishing. Just don't do it. There's no need. It's a completely separate space than the space you should be in. Do not let publishing become your entire thing because if it does, then every rejection hurts so much because it's your whole thing. Whereas if you if you have, and I'm not saying that writers don't have lives, of course they do. But if you, if you let it become this huge thing that swallows up your life, then everything is going to hurt that much more. And so my advice to budding writers would be, if you're not enjoying it, you need to take a step back and ask yourself why you're not enjoying it. Are you not enjoying it because this idea isn't working, bin it. Absolutely bin it. You know how we get told that you shouldn't finish a book, reading a book if you're not enjoying it? If you're not enjoying writing a book, my God, throw it away. There are a thousand ideas out there that you could write instead that would be more fun. If you're not enjoying it because you're writing something that you feel like is going to get published, but it's not feeding you, bin it. But if you're, if you're not enjoying it because you're not enjoying it, then my God, you need to take a step back, stop writing for like six months or a year, nothing is gonna happen. There is no ideal age. There is no optimal age at which to get published. Bonnie Gormas, the woman who wrote Lessons in Chemistry, I believe she's in her late 50s, I think. Oh, I hope I haven't aged her too much, but she's definitely, I think, in her 50s. And this woman has had an entire life. She's had several careers behind her and she's wrote she wrote this fascinating book. And the only way she could have written that book is if she lived her entire life the way she did before she wrote it because she brought so much of herself to it. And it is a bestseller and it is so good and I loved it so much. I don't think Bonnie Gomez could have written that book when she was 25 and that's okay, you know? Age doesn't matter, so just take a break from it. Allow yourself to become a person whose whole thing isn't publishing again because then you will become a better writer. I promise you that. That is the advice that I have, which is a bit sort of, I think it's something that people don't, at least the people that I see giving advice, they don't really talk about. Their advice is always to keep going. But my advice, I think, is to stop and get some rest and remind yourself that you are Mm. like a fully realized 3D human being with complex feelings and desires and wants and urges, and that you have a whole life and you are a whole person and allow yourself to be that. And then you can come back and write something incredible.
1: You know, I think that is good advice because I think to write a book that's good, you have to have lived a life first. And if your life is just reading about six-figure preempts, you're not going to achieve that life. Get off Twitter. Get off Twitter. I got off Twitter.
0: What a wonderful (laughs) time for me. I don't know anything. Who's Leaky Sue? I couldn't tell you. And I'm having a great time.
1: (laughs) And finally, can you tell us about um, your next book? Give us a hint about what your working on at the moment
0: (laughs) sure um uh it's with my editor right now so who knows she could come back and say this is awful casting write something else and i'll say okay fine but i'll have to tell all these podcast hosts that i have to amend my answer (laughs) the book that the, the the second book is is about friendship so it's about these two people um a man and a woman who meet when they are 11 years old and then um they're friends for 10 years and at the very beginning of the book they have this massive fight, right? They're 21, they have this huge fight and then it goes back and it traces their relationship out. But like A to Z, not like good intentions, where right? It's all over the place. It's sort of just very linear after that point. And you're sort of learning about their relationship together. And again, at the beginning, it's all very nice, but then you sort of realize that these two people are very toxic to one another right. and they behave very bizarrely to each other as people who would call each other their best friend. They hide things. They lie. They think awful things about each other. It's this like mess of a relationship, and you're constantly, or at least I was when I was reading it back to myself. I was constantly just questioning, like, why are you friends? Like, why are you? Why are you doing this to each other? What is going on? And you sort of kind of find out, but it's uh, it was really interesting. Like, I'm obsessed with friendship and um, the reasons why we stay and the reasons why we don't leave. You know, which I think are two different circles. And so that's what this book is about.
1: That's great. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Kasim. I'm really, uh, I'm really pleased that you could join me on the podcast today.
0: Thank you for having me. I had such a, I had such a fun time. And I figured out my conflict, so that's good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was Kasim Ali talking about his contemporary novel, Good Intentions, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, You can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.